Hello, this is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare professionals. I'm your host, Denise Dupra, a general internist involved in primary care at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and an associate director of education for the Center for Individualized Medicine in Rochester. Over the next several weeks, we're going to devote a mini series of Mayo Clinic Talks to the incredible field of genes and your health. We'll discuss concepts in genetics that are essential to providing the best care of your patients and how you can apply this information to individualize and optimize patient care in your own practice. Today, we're joined by Dr. Eric Matei and Dr. Nick Nicholson. Today's topic is a spotlight on pharmacogenomics pain. Welcome, Nick and Eric. Thanks for having us. Dr. Nick Nicholson is a consultant in the Department of Anesthesiology and Perioperative Medicine. He is an associate professor of anesthesiology and pharmacology in the College of Medicine. Dr. Nicholson currently chairs the Pharmacogenomics Task Force, where he and his team of pharmacists, laboratory experts, IT experts, and educators bring pharmacogenomics to the bedside throughout the Mayo Clinic enterprise. Dr. Eric Matei has been a pharmacist at the Mayo Clinic since graduating from Howard University School of Pharmacy in 2004. In his current role, Dr. Matei has been instrumental in the implementation of Pharmacogenomics Consult Service and serves as the program director of their Pharmacogenomics Residency Program. He's involved in a number of pharmacogenomics initiatives and also serves as a member of the Mayo Clinic Pharmacogenomics Task Force, among other committees. Thank you both for joining us today. So I'm going to start out by setting the stage. We know that most physicians and other healthcare professionals who see patients probably have a very limited knowledge of pharmacogenomics as a field. And no matter where you're talking pain or P450, really don't remember a lot about it. So my first question, which I'm going to ask both of you is this. Do all patients who need a pain medicine need pharmacogenomics? Because we know that all of of us who are healthcare professionals probably prescribe pain medicine, if not daily, probably weekly. So Nick, what do you think? Does every patient need formal pharmacogenomics testing? Uh, For my opinion, absolutely not. There is some places where it's helpful. But really, if we consider the clinical setting, if we didn't already have the results and your patient came in in pain and you said, okay, I'll treat you in a week when the pharmacogenomics results come back, I think that would be pretty unacceptable to your patient. So we really don't want to do that. Where pharmacogenomic results sometimes can be helpful is if the patient already has them and for certain drugs, which I know we'll discuss during this. Thanks, Nick. Eric, what about you? What's your opinion? Does every patient, is it essential that we get pharmacogenomics? I'll have to agree with Nick on this one. I would say if the pharmacogenomic results are already in the medical record, which I advocate for, meaning preemptive pharmacogenomic testing for as many of our patients as we can, if the results are already available, especially for patients who've had problems with multiple medications or multiple pain medications, it would be, I think, essential to look at the patient's genes and looking at their pharmacogenomic results to see how best those results can help. 
But in acute cases where the pharmacogenomic results are not available, and usually the turnaround time for these tests could be seven to sometimes 10 days, depending on you know, a number of variables. I think in those cases, it, it do not make a whole lot of sense to say, let's wait for, let's, let's have pharmacogenomic tests before we treat the patient. Well, and I would agree. And I've actually had the experience where I had a patient in the preoperative setting come in and we talked about her. And when she'd had a hip replaced previously, she had a terrible time with pain management after her surgery. And as I got ready to clear her, or at least say she was medically optimized for surgery, she said, well, what about my genetics? And yeah. so we went in and looked at her <laughs> pharmacogenomics and I made some specific recommendations to her surgeon. And and she flew through surgery and had a very simple and uncomplicated postoperative period. So Nick, you talked about the difference that not all pain medicines and pharmacogenomics are important for all classes of pain meds. So as a primary care clinician, we've got NSAIDs and we've got tramadol and we get the various opioids. What classes or what groups of medicines is it important to have pharmacogenomic information or should I look for pharmacogenomic information when I'm sitting down to prescribe a medication? Okay. Well, actually, it really only is for a few classes of drugs. Primarily, we have drugs that go through cytochrome P452D6, codeine and tramadol. And for those to be activated, they have to go through that enzyme. So if you have a problem genetically with that enzyme, you're going to have problems with those particular drugs. So if you had the results, you'd certainly want to use them. Okay, so if somebody is a poor metabolizer, they won't get effect. If they're an ultra-rapid metabolizer, they could have a greater effect. In fact, there's been cases where mom has gotten codeine and she was an ultra-rapid metabolizer and passed on the high morphine concentration to the baby and had poor, poor outcomes. So if you have these results, these are fantastic. But a lot of the drugs, especially I work in anesthesia and critical care, most of our drugs, we really don't worry about pharmacogenomics because they might go through different enzymes like 3A4, where we don't really have the problem. You know what I mean? And um, so it's situational. But in the clinic, codeine, tramadol, possibly hydrocodone, I'd still consider using it because the information isn't quite as strong there. Oxycodone's fine. Some reports say don't use it, but I think that, that it's fine. The next class of drugs would be NSAIDs, and you could have a problem with 2C9 in clearance of certain things like ibuprofen or Celebrex. But in many cases, we're using them kind of PRN. If you have a patient with a fever or a headache, you don't really need to worry about a single dose or a dose or two of ibuprofen. Sometimes we give a single dose of Celebrex prior to surgery. You don't need pharmacogenomics for, for that one either. Where it might be more helpful is if somebody's on very high doses, maybe in rheumatology, and they're on them continuously. Maybe we would like to know their ability to clear those drugs. So that would be a good case. So what I like to do is first look at if the results are available, do they apply to the drugs that I'm thinking? So Nick, if I understand then, codeine and tramadol are what we often talk about as pro-drugs meaning by themselves, they're really placebos almost. So they have to be activated to actually be effective analgesics. So are you saying that if somebody says, Doc, Tramadol never works for me, 
or Cody never works for me, that they may not be that what we used to think about is the patient seeking the fentanyl or oxycodone, that there could be a real reason that they may not respond to those drugs? That's absolutely correct. This is a good thing to know because we don't want to label somebody as drug-seeking behavior when they have a 2D6 problem, you know what I mean? And we're using drugs that wouldn't get activated, as you said. So yeah, we do have problems with those prodrugs, but some of the other drugs that are a little more iffy, they have partial 2D6, where you have hydrocodone or oxycodone, they're active and they might get activated more. Really, oxycodone is more of a 3A4 problem, so I don't worry about that one. And hydrocodone, you can give it a try, see if it works. But if it didn't work, if you had lack of efficacy in the person, uh, you did have the results and they had a problem with 2D6, yeah, switch them away. This is where we would find things to be helpful. So what about now you mentioned sort of the overact, the person who is a very fast metabolizer of the substance with codeine in particular going to morphine, which is the active metabolite. But what about tramadol? Because when I prescribe tramadol, and I have a patient who's on an SSRI, there's often a big warning sign that comes up and says, don't do this for fear of serotonin syndrome. Do I have to worry about that patient who may be a rapid metabolizer? Should I shy away from the drug? I haven't really thought about that, but as we're sitting here talking, I'm now thinking, gosh, maybe if I know that person's a rapid metabolizer, I shouldn't be giving that to a patient who's on an SSRI or, or potentially a high SSRI dose? Well, you can run into problems and obviously you'd want to stay away from it anyway, because you run that same risk of making too much desmethyl tramadol, where the concentrations are going to be higher than you want them to be. So you run into the same issue as codeine anyway. So you're really in both situations on either end of the spectrum poor or ultra-rapid. Those are the two drugs. You just want to stay away from them. There's other things we can do. So that background's really helpful, but I'm glad we have Eric in our group today because I think in particular, the pharmacist has always been my go-to person when I've got a question about meds. And Eric, I think one of the questions I would have for you is, is that how do you interface with the clinician, both in the hospital setting, but more importantly, even in the outpatient setting? And and how can you help me as a frontline provider or prescriber really na navigate these somewhat complicated ideas about pro-drugs and not pro-drugs? And I may or may not have pharmacogenomic information on my patient to decide what would be the best medication for a patient. Yeah, Denise, that's a very, very good question. What we have done here at Mayo Clinic is... We went, I'll say, two approaches. One approach was provide our clinicians with something called Ask Mayo Expert, where we have as many point of care information for our clinicians. So a busy clinician who is in the office wants information about a specific medication. If you go into Ask Mayo Expert, you type in, for instance, codeine or tramadol, we have created specific concise content that the clinicians can use. Now, the scenario that you also provided, which is what if I want to have an interaction with our pharmacist? Mayo Clinic, once again, when I'm going to go back and say during our Rite 10K project, the Department of Pharmacy took advantage of this project and educated more than 500 pharmacists about pharmacogenomics and its relevance. Most pharmacists 
who work either in the hospital or work in the primary care have a fundamental education about how to utilize pharmacogenomics in their setting. If a pharmacist or a clinician, right, who might not have enough knowledge about pharmacogenomics, all they need to do is phone a friend. And that friend could be a pharmacist who has already been trained, or we do have specialized pharmacogenomic pharmacists. There's three of us here on, on the Rochester campus, and then we have some in Arizona, in the health system, as well as in Florida. Now, how do we interact in these cases? I think we have the opportunity of e-consults. As we've gone through, I'll say COVID, we have all become very familiar with virtual consults. We do have phone consults as well as what we call sites. Clinicians can always walk into our pharmacist offices and have a patient on a specific medication. They have pharmacogenomic result. How can we be of help? And we are always willing and happy to really help our clinicians in that way. I want to go back to the conversations that we're having earlier on about the pro-drug and the active drug. There was a patient who had been on tramadol for five years, and tramadol had not been effective for this patient. And the patient kept requesting for higher doses. Okay. And when the patient came to Mayo Clinic, we had offered, this patient came to a general internal medicine consult, and pharmacogenomic testing was recommended. So they came in, we had the test result. When the result came back, the patient was a CYP2D6, as Dr. Nicholson or Nick had been mentioning. The patient was a poor metabolizer. So irrespective of how high a dose we had given this patient or would have given this patient, this patient would have thought that we were giving them M&Ms because the medication was just not going to work. Now, what did this do for the patient is that the patient was now open to tapering off the medication because now they were aware of what their genes were telling them and the clinicians working with the pharmacist were able to have right a conversation with the, with the patient to say, based on your genetic profile, we can give you the highest dose possible and triple it and nothing is going to happen. So those are some of the cases where pharmacogenomics can play an integral part or an intervention for a patient who may be wanting higher doses, but revelation of their genes can really help them sometimes pull back. Eric, you raised something really important because I think as a clinician, when we think about patients in pain medicine and the emphasis now on addiction and dependence, we think about tolerance and the right. patient who starts on a dose and they want a higher dose and a higher dose and a higher dose as really being a big red flag to potential addiction and dependence. And I hadn't thought about that, but that patient who's requesting higher doses because of lack of efficacy may not in fact be addicted, but may in fact, especially in the case of tramadol or maybe codeine, it, it simply may be a fact they're not addicted to it. It's just not doing anything. And so they think more is better when in fact more is M&Ms because it's absolutely not effective. So it sounds like that might be a real clue in a situation where that patient who's not responding to a medication at a standard dose. Now, would that be a reason you might think about saying, gosh, maybe you, patient X, should talk to your doctor or nurse practitioner about getting some testing to see if you may have a pharmacogenomic reason for non-response to a drug? I absolutely would say yes to that. Right. And also educating the patient about expectations, right? And that pharmacogenomic result is not a magic pill to help with the pain, but it can help 
ensure that we are providing the appropriate medication at the appropriate dose to ensure that the patient is getting the best experience out of their medication. Nick, other thoughts about what clues there would be in a patient experience to make you think we should think about pharmacogenomic testing because of what's happening with a patient and their response or lack there of response to treatment with an appropriate dose of pain medicine. I would agree with all of what Eric uh, already said. I think what you'd want to do is size things up. Uh, knowledge of what drugs will get you into trouble to begin with. In my practice, obviously, I shy away from codeine and tramadol to begin with. So that is sometimes the biggest problem. But what I like to point out to people is also consider your basic pharmacological concepts. Oftentimes, we're giving acetaminophen and codeine or acetaminophen and an opioid. And as you pointed out, we've got opioid problem in this country. Well, by looking at different combinations, particularly an NSAID and acetaminophen, you actually can get better outcomes. There's studies that show that really you don't need to give very much acetaminophen and uh, ibuprofen and it actually is superior to acetaminophen and codeine. So, and this is because of where the areas where these work. But the NSAIDs work primarily in the periphery and the acetaminophen and the opioids work primarily centrally. So what happens is you provide a greater coverage of that pain pathway if you're covering peripheral plus central than just banging on the central. So that's why some people are really surprised. A lot of people often think, oh, I'll give ibuprofen or I'll give acetaminophen. I'm more of the thing is if they're a candidate for both, give both, you'll be quite surprised. And often I have to use that opioid. Maybe that person where I had the tramadol problem, I switch them to that combination and my problem is solved. Do you see what I mean? So sometimes, yes, I agree with Eric about the testing, but then sometimes too, when you don't have time and you just don't want to wait for a test, a different pharmacologic approach can sometimes give you a superior outcome. I had heard that, I, in particular in the dental literature, that after a tooth extraction, the old, I'll give you some Tylenol number three or Tylenol with codeine, that actually if you gave ibuprofen alternating with Tylenol, that you got equal, if not better, response in terms of pain relief. All I remember from my wisdom tooth extraction was throwing up horribly after the Tylenol with codeine on an empty stomach. That was not one of my more pleasant memories as a teenager from that regimen of pain medication. So I've avoided that like the plague, I will tell you that. Yeah, that study is really kind of classic. The interesting thing about that study is they gave like 400 milligrams of ibuprofen and 1,000 milligrams of acetaminophen. The next thing that was just about as effective was half of that dose. And that's because of the pharmacological ceiling. And that's what people should remember about NSAIDs and acetaminophen. You don't really have to bomb your patients with them. Low doses are very effective. Now, I do know there's specialized practices like rheumatology and things where things get pushed up a little bit and they know what they're doing. But really, most of us are working on acute pain and we really don't have to always take out a very big hammer. Now, I'm not saying to throw the baby out the bathwater, too. I mean, now sometimes people feel like, oh, I can never give an opioid. No, they have their place still. I don't think they're going anywhere. Maybe if you've got a little bit of dental pain, giving somebody 30 days worth of oxycodone might not be necessary. In fact, I can tell you it isn't necessary. A couple days worth would probably suffice. 
thinking like that too can also help us with some of this opioid. Nick mentioned Tylenol number three or acetaminophen and codeine and sort of working centrally. Can you make a comment about combination pain medicines in general? Myself, I've been trying to avoid these combination medications. And as a pharmacist, do you have some general advice for healthcare professionals about the wisdom of these combination drugs? When we start thinking about the combinations, what sometimes can get patients in trouble is that patients may be taking a component of the combined medication at home. So for instance, if you think about acetaminophen, we all know that patients should not be taking more than 4,000 milligrams or four grams a day. So if a patient right, has arthritis and they're taking 650 milligrams of the extended release acetaminophen at home, and they're taking that, let's say four times a day, and now you're giving them the Tylenol number three, which also has acetaminophen in it, and you're not mindful or not aware that the patient already has acetaminophen at home, you can easily get into problems with your liver, right? So I think the practical advice that I would give about the combination medications, especially for pain is always asking the patient, what else are you taking? What else have you tried? Because before most patients will come to the clinic, they would have stopped at an over-the-counter aisle to try something which may not have worked. And they may continue to be taking those medications, even if it's an NSAID or acetaminophen. And so in most of those cases, I think the important thing is trying to understand what the patient is taking on the side. Talking about other medications that the patients may be taking, we always have to think about as pharmacists. If I don't mention this, I think the pharmacy world will come on me. Drug, drug interactions, right? Are there other medications that the patient could be taking that may inhibit some of these pathways? So we're talking about tramadol and codeine. Both medications are metabolized by CYP2-D6. However, we have patients who have pain and may also have depression. So if a patient is taking a medication such as fluoxetine, which is also a substrate or broken down or activated or cleared by CYP2D6, but it is also a major inhibitor, meaning that it blocks the CYP2D6 pathway. So your patient comes in, the normal CYP2D6 metabolizer, you give them tramadol. Day one, they say, well, the medication worked. But then they go in and they're also given fluoxetine to manage their depression. And all of a the sudden, they're telling you that, well, my pain is not well managed. It could be, and most likely, the fluoxetine has blocked the pathway of the activation of codeine or the tramadol to the extent that now pain is not going to be well managed, right? So understanding, I know the question was about combination, but if the patient is on an inhibitor or in, the, in other cases, an inducer, we have to be mindful of those drug-drug interactions and advise accordingly or sometimes make changes to the medications so our patients don't get into trouble. So Eric, do you think that's something that most pharmacists are going to pick up on when that patient comes and fills a prescription at the local pharmacies? Or is that something that may not be as well recognized in our community pharmacies? Very great question, Denise. And the reason why I say great question is, as pharmacogenomic implementers, Nick and I, among other things that we do, is that a day will come where patient medical information will be accessible in all health systems and in all health 
institutions to avoid the scenario that you're describing, which is today, if that information, which is the pharmacogenomic information is not available in the community pharmacy, that pharmacist will not be aware that our patient has a gene issue when it comes to those medications that I mentioned, right? Now, most pharmacies do have a drug-drug interaction app in their health record, and it may flag that, but what we'll be missing is the gene component, right? And so if the patient has pharmacogenomic results in our EPIC record, and that the outpatient or the, the community pharmacy does not have EPIC, that information will not be available. So we have some work to do and making sure that we empower the patient, just as you had described with your patient who was going to go for surgery and say, how about my genes? Patients will also have to be empowered to say, you've had pharmacogenomic testing. Before it, most medications are prescribed to you, just ask the question, would this be an issue? And in most cases, Pharmacists, even if they are not aware, will be able to then dig up and help the patient in those cases. So I think at the end of the day, empowering our patients in systems where that knowledge will not be available will be the key until we get to that point. Thank you, Eric. Yeah. So Nick, you said we don't have, there's not every drug is not impacted. So if you were to have the opportunity to say, what should be in my pocket? What should be in my toolbox for pain management? for the clinician out there in practice. Are there some of the go-to drugs that you would recommend if you didn't have pharmacogenomic information on your patient? Yes, definitely. This is the way I approach pain and I find it works most of the time. First, I start out with about 400 milligrams of ibuprofen. If that doesn't work, then I add about 500 milligrams of acetaminophen. That doesn't work, then I add a little bit, and this is more severe pain as we step up. Now, you maybe just had your wisdom teeth pulled. Maybe you get two days of plain oxycodone, five milligrams for coverage, and then you work your way back down. Okay, what you want to try to do when you're treating pain, and I know it's a little bit difficult sometimes because we all have standard forms of things that we like to do, but you do like to titrate. And I work in anesthesia and critical care. Titration is the name of the game. That is all our anesthesia, all our critical care meds. They're all titrated to the effect of the patient. That's why I like to say anesthesia is probably the most individualized medicine you can probably get because you have a, somebody standing over you actually giving you exactly what you need. And if there's a little bit of an interaction or there's a little bit of genomic problem or there's a little bit of this, See, they can pick up on it by monitoring the patient, right? So that's kind of the nice thing. Just kind of pile on to one of Eric's remarks. I know pharmacogenomics sounds complicated, and a lot of people haven't been exposed to it. I'm both a physician and pharmacist. I had it in neither school. I learned it later in fellowship. Basically, here's the easy way to look at pharmacogenomics. If you understand drug interactions... And you say, okay, if I give this drug, it inhibits this enzyme, so I'm not going to metabolize things that go through that enzyme. If you understand that, or you say, I have a drug like rifampin or something that induces everything, and so everything's going to get chewed up. If you understand those concepts, the pharmacogenomics are really the same thing. Basically, a poor metabolizer is like you gave an inhibitor. A ultra-rapid metabolizer is like you gave an inducer. So you really can work with those kind of concepts to keep things simple, to help you understand this as you go along. 
Eric does it with me all the time. We teach pharmacists and clinicians and chat about these concepts all the time. And there are easier ways to look at this stuff other than the, oh, this point mutation at a certain place in gene is done. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, <laughs> even myself. So let's just use what you know, and it, it'll actually help you as you work with this stuff. Wonderful. So I think the bottom line is start low, go slow, and ignore the star alleles. And I'm all for that 100%. Yeah, the basic concepts are the best. I tell everybody to look at everything first, then look at pharmacogenomics. Because if you've got a problem in pharmacogenomics, yeah, guess what? You still have your liver problem or your kidney problem, or none of those things went away. So consider those things first, because people have so many comorbidities. When you look at a pharmacogenomics report and all the beautiful layout they have on that thing, sometimes like kind of fools you a little bit and go, oh, they have a normal metabolism. Hey, happy days. Well, no, they got kidney disease and liver disease and all the stuff you were messing with before or drug interactions, as Eric pointed out. So that's what I think makes our pharmacists so valuable. They're really good at putting all of these things together to assist the clinician. The clinicians are good at this too. Usually with the drugs, they work with the most. Everybody's got their favorites, depending on what their practice is, their, their go-tos, okay? The problem is when a patient sees about six physicians, everybody's got a different set of go-tos. So that's where the pharmacist can really help you out. Absolutely. Well, I think more now than ever, let's face it, medicine and patient care is a team sport. So today we've been talking about Spotlight on Pharmacogenomics Pain with Dr. Eric Matei, a pharmacist here at the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Nick Nicholson, one of our physicians at the Mayo Clinic. Thank you so much for your time. If you've enjoyed the Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please follow us wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Please also check out our sister podcasts, The Pursuit of Precision, The Science Advancing Individualized Medicine, which features an in-depth conversation with researchers and physicians on discoveries and emerging science in precision medicine. Topics include population genomics, the episome, digital health, the exposome, and individualized vaccines for cancer. See, your genes really matter. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Denise. Thanks, Eric. Thanks. And with that, we'll sign up for today. Have a great day. <laughs>